This past week, a few days ago, I had a chance to speak at the honors program at Kingsbury Middle School. It was a great opportunity in front of 6th, 7th, 8th graders. The principal said, I want you to come, and I know you're a pastor and you're an author, so uh, you can talk about anything you want. You can talk about your books, your work. You can talk about God. Just don't give an altar call at the end. I was like, this is sweet. This is awesome. So I got to stand in front of middle schoolers and talk to them about taking risks in life and what that looks like for us. But I was on a stage with seventh graders. They were the MCs of the event. And beforehand, I sat down with them and they were shaking, boys and girls. So nervous to stand in front of their peers and to lead the pledge or come up with some introduction. And uh, they, they looked at me and they said, how long have you been speaking in front of people? And I said, a really long time. Been preaching over 15 years now. And they said, do you get nervous? And I said, that's a great question. I get asked that question quite a bit. Do you still get nervous? And it's very rare that I get nervous to the point where uh, my voice is shaking or my knees are, are knocking or my hands are sweating. Um, but there's always a little bit of nervousness in me before I speak in front of any large crowd, any crowd at all. And especially on a morning like this, there's this nervousness in me, this anticipation if. When I stand in front of people, it is the call of God on my life to represent God and to represent him well. And that's something I never want to take lightly. So anytime I stand in front of you, it comes from a heart that's been with the Lord, wrestling with God. And this morning, I just want to work us through three verses. Uh, but what God has done to me and the wrestling it has take, taken in my life just to pre present this message to you... Um, Kind of a heavy heart because what's really on my heart is it's not just that we think about God. It's how we think about God. It's not just that we think about faith and what that means when we suffer or what is God determined and predetermined. It's how do we think about God and how we think about him. The lives we live reflect on how we think about God, how we read the Bible. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. We're in a sermon series on Romans 8. We've called the living spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up so much in Romans 8. Here are three verses I want to unpack, and then next week I want to bring this series to a close. Uh, but here it is. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How many of you would say that's probably in like your top 10 of your favorite verses in the Bible? Anybody? Romans 8, 28? Got a few? For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And for the reading of the word, the church said, amen. All right. Uh, when I was speaking in front of these middle schoolers talking about taking risks, I talked to them and shared my experiences before when I've gone skydiving or when I rock climb with my boys. So let me show you an image. If you go to the next image of, of a cliff. Now, um, uh, you can see cliffs in a lot of different places. And I rock climb with my boys. We rock climb sometimes. Now, I don't do this kind of crazy stuff. I rock climb inside where there's AC and ropes that I know they're going to catch me, all right? Uh, and, and when I rock climb with my boys, there's, there's a way to teach them like to see in a really small kind of way. Just look at what is in front of you and you think about your next step. But there's also a time when you rock climb that you want to stem back and get like the bigger picture, like form your strategy, see the, the whole thing. And there are times where you can catch a, 
Uh, oh, you already went to the other one. All right. <laughs> there, you can, there are times where you can look at a cliff and see its beauty and its danger. And then if you go to the next slide now, if you go to the next one, um, that cliff, the picture I just showed was the one way over there on the left. You take back and you get the bigger picture. And you see it for all of its beauty and wonder and danger and adventure. And there are times when we read scripture that we can latch on to one verse without seeing it in its greater picture, in its greater context. And I've tried to do this for us throughout this whole series in Romans 8 because I'm trying to unpack a lot. But I want you to keep it in the bigger context of Romans 8, and not just Romans 8, but all of Romans, and not just all of Romans, but the entire Bible. As the unfolding work of God is still transpiring in front of us today. So here are three things. And these aren't three things that sum up Romans 8 or Romans. But there are three things I want you to know about Romans and Romans 8 before we go any further. Number one, uh, God cares a lot about freedom and liberation. It's not just what you have been freed from. It's what you are freed into. Um, this was really good news and challenging news for the Jews that Paul was writing to in Rome because for them, this freedom and liberation, and in some ways, of course, it was freedom and liberation from sin, but for the Jews, it was also freedom and liberation from their commitment to the law, from thinking that their commitment to the law is what saves them or gains favor with God, so they keep their law, honor the regulations. It was freeing them from forms of legalism and ushering them into a new kind of life. For Gentiles and pagans who have been caught up in all kind of pagan ideas, Idolatry. It was freedom and liberation from their past into something new. It was freedom into something for the Jew and Gentile. That God, because of what Jesus did, was bringing them into the same community where Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, now whites and blacks and Latinos, that we are all grafted into the same story. It's not just what you're freed from, but freed into. Number two is that God is good. And that it takes a lot of courage and trust and faith to bank on the goodness of God. Now, uh, today I want to unpack verses 28 through 30. But last week we talked about groans. That three different times in Romans 8, you have creation groaning, you have humanity groaning, you have the spirit groaning. And the groan you read about in Romans 8 is not just a groan of despair. It is a groan of frustration that something isn't right. Like things are not as God intended them to be. So we groan as we ache for this kind of redemption. Um, now, uh, God is good, but everything in the world isn't good. And a lot of times what's hard for us is we focus on the immediate and we don't see the ultimate. We focus on what is right there before us instead of seeing this larger picture of the goodness of God working out his purposes for us, in us, through us, that God knows where this story is going and we're banking on the goodness of God even when what we see all around us is chaos, confusion, frustration, betrayal, pain, brokenness. That as we groan, because things are not right, we're banking on the goodness of God. Number three, God's going to finish what God started. So uh, I've, if I had to choose one verse from Romans 8 that I've kept in mind, I've prayed through, and I've been standing on as I've been preaching through all the verses in Romans 8, it's Romans 8 verse 11, that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise your mortal body. He's going to bring and breathe life into your body so that the last chapter of your life is not when you die, that's a chapter in your life, but it's not the last chapter. The final chapter is the resurrection and restoration of all things. God's bringing everything. He's, he's going to finish what he started. As I've told you before in Revelation, my friend Randy Harris sums up the book of Revelation like this. Number one, God wins. Number two, you get to choose what team you want to be on. Number three, don't be stupid, all right? Because you know how the story ends. And if you know how the story ends and it ends with victory, we want to be on that team. 
Now, let me unpack just a little bit of Romans 8 because, uh, and, and here's, and I don't do this all the time. I want to show you what Romans 8, 28 through 30 is in the Greek, like word for word. And this is really hard because sometimes like Greek structure is really difficult uh, because sometimes like if you just go word for word, it doesn't really make sense in our language. Translators have the task of translating Greek or any foreign language to another language is really hard because their cynic structures and grammatical ways like culture deals with their, their own language. And, and Romans 8, 28 through 30, is, it's really difficult. Some of you in here read NIV. Some of you are in King James, NRSV, NLT. And if you were to look at Romans 8, 28, Romans 8, 28 through 30, it, it's going to sound a little different. So let's just go. I, I, here's, here's the exact in the Greek. Here's how it goes. And we know that for those who love God, everything contributes toward good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he knew beforehand, he also predetermined, conformed to the image of his son, that he should be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So let's work through this, all right? And we know that for those who love God. Now, <clears throat> Paul's writing to Jews. And any Jew would know that, especially in the Old Testament, that's not all that phrase said. That, that any Jew would know that in the Old Testament, when they, when they were taught, they were going to VBS and all these things growing up, learning Scripture, they knew that it wasn't just, hey, this is for those who love God. The phrase would go, those who love God and keep His commandments. So if you'll go to that next slide, I'll show you just a few verses and you can go look at them later. Places where this shows up. That it's not just about you loving God, it's that you love God and keep his commandments. It would be like me standing in front of you today and saying, okay, for God so loved the world, he gave his, and you could probably finish the sentence. John 3.16. And for them, for Paul to begin a sentence with, and for those who love in their minds, and maybe even out loud, they're saying, those who love God and keep his commandments. But for some reason, Paul left out here, keep his commandments. So we kind of have to make assumptions, right? Like, why did he do it? Because any Jew, you read the Old Testament, you know how the statement goes. Those who love God and keep his commandments. And maybe Paul left it out because he's writing to some people who had been keeping the commandments in a legalistic kind of way to gain favor with God or to be saved or works-based righteousness. Maybe he's just assuming that people are going to get it. And whatever it is for Jew or Gentile, hearing how Paul talks about love God, loving God is not just about your status with God, it's also action in your life. That you don't just love God with your lips of, hey, I love God. It's your actions that determine or that let the world know about your confession that, that you love God. So those who love God. And then this next phrase is where a lot of different interpretations can go crazy, all right? With Romans eight twenty eight, Everything contributes toward good. And I think what I would want people to know before we even start unpacking a little bit is that a believer's confidence rests on the outworking of God's purposes, not just in your life, but in the entire world, the entire cosmos. A believer's confidence rests in the faithfulness and goodness of God that God's outworking plan of salvation is currently playing out. It's moving somewhere. It's going somewhere. So even as we live lives where there's frustration and chaos and stress and tension, that this story of God, it's, it's going somewhere. The outworking of God's purposes are happening. This contribute, is, it's uh, contributing toward. It's to help bring about. And here's how it can be really challenging. Uh, there was a survey taken a few years ago, and the survey said, what has been the defining moment or season in your life that caused the most spiritual growth for you? And the number one answer was something that dealt with pain. 
that people, when they thought about the time in their life when they spiritually were challenged the most and grew the most, their response was, it was in a time of pain. Maybe that came in the form of someone close to them who had died or a divorce, some form of brokenness, some form, most likely a time in your life when you became so desperate for healing or peace that it became a time in maybe even your life for great spiritual growth uh, and development. Now, now here's where it can be challenging when we think about pain and tragedies and suffering and brokenness. Is what has God ordained? And when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what does that include and what does that not include? Like, has God ordained? Has God scripted every form of pain, tragedy, suffering that has happened in your life or that has happened in the world? So if God is overall, and we're reading a verse that talks about those who love God, and contri- everything contributes to good, what, is, what does all this mean? Like, what has God ordained? What details in life has God ordained? Because where it gets really confusing for people and challenging, even for, for people as they process faith and suffering, is, okay, if God, he's sovereign, and I believe, I believe that to the core of who I am, God is sovereign, and he is over all. But when we start talking about the details, is God ordained and scripted and set it in motion, and there's nothing can change? Is God, is God when God, we talk about God being sovereign, does that mean even evil has been ordained by God to fulfill the glory of God or the purposes of God? So if we believe God has scripted every single thing in life, does this mean God has scripted 17-year-olds who die in car wrecks or dads who drop dead from heart attacks or, or forms of divorce and, and affairs? And the list could go on, right? So I, I sit back and I reflect on my own life personally. When my sister died in 2010, uh, there was this prayer movement that began. 20,000 plus people were praying. Hundreds of churches had her on prayer lists and she still died. Her funeral was like this amazing worship service. There's still people. I get emails from people who go online to watch my sister's funeral of how a thousand plus people worship God on that day. There were people who came to the funeral who had been following the journey, who had no connection. They, they didn't know who the Rosses were before my sister was sick. They just got caught up on care pages and they came. And a few weeks later, we started hearing of people who had come to trust in God and surrender their lives to God and had been baptized into Christ because of how they had seen my family and people grieving and clinging to God even in the midst of death and brokenness. And I remember I heard from a few people and they said, okay, Jenny died so that those two people could trust in God and come to know God. And I hear that and I'm like, I'm not buying it. Because I think I serve a God who is way too creative than that. All right, there are times throughout the Bible where you read of God ordaining and speaking forms of destruction over a person's life or over countries. But the overarching view of God, and I I can't go through every story throughout the entire Bible, but I think the way I think of God, and I think the way Jesus teaches us to think of God is that when sin entered into the world, all creation has gone crazy and bad, evil things happen. And it's not because God has ordained every specific detail of evil to happen, but we do have a God that when bad things happen, He is creatively and actively attempting to move things to redemption and restoration. This is why when tragedies hit, people can come together. And you have Republicans and Democrats who may not want to hang out, but tragedies hit, some of those walls begin to fall down, right? Post 9-11, 
after the Vegas shooting, after some of African Americans have been shot by police officers, when police officers have died, like you, you get this, this bringing together, this unity, because this, it just happens. It's in human nature, like we do this. So um, the five stages of grief, and I don't know if you've studied these, but they go like this. The five stages of grief, and grief isn't just for those who die. This could be divorce. This could be forms of betrayal, bankruptcy, things that hit your life. Whenever you grieve, five stages go like this. There's denial. There's anger. There's bargaining. There's depression. And there's acceptance. And at any moment, you could go in and out of any of those stages. There's denial that it even happened. There's anger. When Jenny died, there was this anger. Like, why didn't you go to the ER quicker? There, there's bargaining of, man, I wish I could be in that place. Uh, what could I have done differently? There's depression of how in the world am I going to move forward from this? There's, there's acceptance. That's stage five. I was hanging out with a friend, Dave Clayton. He's the pastor of the Ethos Church in Nashville. We were together a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this. And he says what he's come to believe though about the five stages of grief is that for people who follow Jesus, the fifth stage is not acceptance. It's activation. And I love that. All right. All right. For those who grieve, who are clinging to the Jesus story, the stage of grief, the fifth stage of grief is not acceptance. It's activation. That people of God who are clinging to the resurrection know that that is the end of the story. Resurrection, restoration. And what happens with people of God is that when we grieve and when things are broken and when there is pain is that God can bring resurrection and restoration and he can activate. So after Jenny died, it gave our family even a greater passion to want to engage Memphis with more purpose because we believe so much in the resurrection that what God did for Jesus, God can do for Jenny. God can do for the small infants who have died and are buried a baby land right here in Memphis that God can do for all of you, that God can do for the world. That God can raise Jesus from the dead and he can bring all other forms of death to life as well. I've showed you before in Japan, there's this priceless piece of art. This stuff goes for a ton of money. And it's when things are broken and they're put back together. If you go to that next image, stuff like this. It's broken teacups. And then they take forms of, uh, they, they put them back together. And then they use this glue and maybe a little bit of gold like around there. So you have these. And Barbara Bloom wrote about this. And what Barbara Bloom, Broom, Barbara Bloom said, um, if I can find it. Is there a quote up there if you go to that next one? He says, when the Japanese men broke an object, they aggrandized the damage by filling the cracks with gold because they believe that when something suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. And I love that. All right, so here's what I don't want people to do with Romans 8.28. Is to subscribe to some kind of health, wealth, prosperity gospel, which I reject. And you get this on TV and the radio sometimes, and it kind of goes like this. Like, hey, everything works together for good, so if you lost a job, it's because God wants to give you a better job. Or if your car was totaled, it's because God wants to give you a better car. Or if you have a fiancé who left you and ran out, it's because God wants to give you a better fiancé. Like the, the, and, and I read this, and I'm like, man, the, the Bible, this is not the Jesus I serve. Uh, what 12 apostles do you read about ever g- gaining a lot of... Like earthly favor, success can be from God. But this idea is not that God's going to take anything bad in your life and like make something amazing or give you a better job or a better house or a better car. Everything contributes for good according to God's purposes, not your purpose. 
So another verse we often put on refrigerators or cars, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? In Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. And I bet you know it. Some of you, that would be like top five, top ten favorite verses. And, and I'm all about favorite verses. I have them. I claim them. I stand on them. I pray through them. But do you know what Jeremiah 29, 10 says? I, this is like one of those questions, like if somebody came up, what does John three fifteen say? And sometimes you may not know. Jeremiah... Uh, 29.10 says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah 29 is about God telling people, hey, you're going into captivity and you're going to stay there for decades. And the promise of Jeremiah 29.11 may not be fulfilled in your life. It may be your children or your grandchildren. So it's not that God's coming with Jeremiah 29, 11 saying, hey, here's what I'm speaking into your life and I'm speaking this into life and existence right now. It's that, hey, somewhere down the road, here's how my plan's gonna be fulfilled. But right now, there may be some pain and brokenness because you're gonna be in a place that is not your home. So Romans 28, 8, 28, cling to it, believe it, lean into it, but this is for God's purposes in the world, not your own. Verse 29 of Romans 8, is that for those he, he knew he, beforehand, he also predetermined, conformed to the image of his son, that he should be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. If you underline in your Bible, Romans eight twenty nine, it is pointing to conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So if you want to have a conversation about predetermined and predestination, it needs to happen in Romans eight twenty nine. it needs to happen within context of the ultimate goal being conformity to the image of Jesus. That from the very beginning, when the world went crazy because of sin, God had a plan in place that was leading to conformity, his glory, and conformity to the image of Jesus. This is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship and spiritual formation and what faith is about, this isn't about a belief system for you. It's not about five plans of salvation or here are the few things you need to do to be a faithful church member. It is about conformity to the image of Jesus that we are, we are striving to know Jesus in the kind of way that we are thinking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, honoring God the way Jesus honored God. Um, now, when it comes to what has been predetermined, is this individuals, is this a greater plan? Because there are some questions that we can sit around in life groups and we can talk about forever. When it comes to the sovereignty of God, what is God sovereign over? Is God's sovereignty limited, which I don't think it is? Uh, does God choose who is saved and who is not saved? Or do people choose whether they want to accept Jesus or not? Has God already written this script and it's set in motion and there's nothing you can do about it? Or are there some things that humans can do or creation can do that doesn't alter the greater plan of God? But that God has given people the option to make some choices. Does God know exactly who you're going to marry? Or is God calling you to have the kind of character where there may actually be choices in your life of who you get to marry? All right, it gets kind of crazy, right? So when it comes to Romans 8.29, there are those who read this and they read into the sovereignty of God, that God is overall, God is in control, and they read it into a very individualistic kind of way, which isn't always bad but that God has already determined for a person and God knows exactly what they're going to choose. And I kind of lean more to a way of thinking when it comes to Romans 8, 28 through 30, that there are some details that God has left open 
But God knows the greater plan. God knows what God is trying to do. God is stepping into moments when we sin and when we break and when there is death, moving it to redemption and restoration. And that God's sovereignty, I affirm the absolute sovereignty of God, but I also believe that humans have the freedom to make choices in life. Now, what gets really difficult even now, even as we're processing this, and you're maybe hearing me, and maybe I'm confusing you more than I'm bringing clarity, it's we love clarity. Like, we want things to be clear. But the Bible talks a lot more about obedience than it does that you have a clear picture of everything God is doing in the world. Mother Teresa once said, I never had clarity from God, I just had trust in God. That even when there wasn't clarity, I'm trusting in God and his plan and his purpose. I believe to the core of who I am that God has predetermined where he is going to take everyone who loves him. I believe it. I believe that the amazing thing is about, about God is that it's not just that God can foreknow and that God can choose. The thing that amazes me about God is that God can foreknow the mess we're going to make out of life and choose us anyway. The thing about salvation is not that you get to choose. It's not that humans get to go to the throne of heaven and knock on the door and beg to get in. It's that God initiates. Everything about salvation is God's initiative. It's God who is knocking on the doors of your heart saying, hey, I don't want to just get into you. I want you to get into me. Salvation is about God. It's his initiative. 2 Timothy verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 9 says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I want people to believe that you're not an accident, that your part with God is not accidental or random. Uh, it is a part of something grand that is unfolding. It's this huge, bigger picture. I want people... I want you to have a big gospel, not a small gospel. Not just about God wanting to save you and your life, but how is God calling you as a saved person to love God in a kind of way where it becomes this active kind of life where other people are coming to know God because of the witness of the church. That the gospel, I don't, I don't want it to be small, I want it to be big. That God's doing something bigger than we could ever imagine. And as God is doing something bigger than we could ever imagine, we are becoming something in this process. That formation and transformation and conformity into God, that, that it's happening right now. In 1999, there was this massive earthquake, maybe you remember it, in the country of Turkey. And there was one prominent village that was completely decimated, completely destroyed. Three decades before the earthquake, the government in Turkey went to the leaders of this village and told them, you are on a fault line. You need to relocate your village. And you know what the leaders of the village did? They met together and they discovered it was going to be too hard to relocate the village. So they took the geographical maps that they handed out to the city and they redrew the maps to make it look like the fault line wasn't where their village was. And for decades, people lived with peace and comfort. And they built homes and businesses and they prospered. And then the earthquake came and destroyed everything. There are voices and powers in the world, principalities and powers of darkness, who are attempting to come into the life of believers and rewrite and redraw where the parameters of God are. 
And when it comes to life and how we think of God, if we do not take time to really process faith and suffering and activation and the Spirit moving in us and transforming us and conforming us, then we can draw this view of a gospel that really isn't the gospel Jesus is calling us into. That the gospel he's calling people into, this is more than you just trusting in Jesus. You can have your sins forgiven to go to heaven when you die. Though I believe all that to be true. This is that we are trusting in God because God has done something amazing in Jesus. And this transforms all of life and relationships because God is calling us into something that has already started. And it's moving to its grand fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment of the new heavens and new earth, the restoration of all things. And I think this is why Paul ends in verse 30 with saying, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Paul speaks of our future as if, as if it's in the past, that you've been justified, you've been glorified. Because Paul knows what he wants everyone to lean into, that your sin and your sorrow and your pain and even death, it is in our story, but it is not the final chapter. That Jesus is moving us to something greater. If you've never given your life to Jesus before, I hope, by the way, you have not just heard me preach today, but the way you've seen this church want to love Jesus through our songs and our prayers and communion. I, I hope that through just our witness today, it may cause you to really think about whether you want to give your life to him or not. And I want to, I'm praying for you to hear the invitation of Jesus in your life. That joining Jesus in the covenant and in relationships is the greatest decision you'll ever make. It has eternal awards with it. And it's conformity into his image and a new life you get to live now. And if you're in a place of pain or suffering or sorrow and you need the prayers of the church, we offer this time now. We're going to sing a couple of songs. We have elders. We have prayer leaders who are stationed around the room. And we invite you to go and find one of them. So let's stand together. Let's sing a couple of songs.